0: From phx.fm, this is Conversation with the Rabbi, featuring open, honest dialogue and sometimes unconventional perspectives on the world we all share. Welcome to another Conversation with the Rabbi. I'm Adrian McIntyre. Our guest today is Dr. Matthew Gunning. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Georgia Gwinnett College. We're going to talk about American politics, certainly a subject that gets a lot of airplay in today's world. And I think we're going to have some interesting conversations about some of the nuances you might not have heard in some of the other mainstream media discussions. Our host for this conversation is, of course, Rabbi Michael Bayo, CEO of the East Valley Jewish Community Center. Good morning, Rabbi.
1: Good morning, Adrian, and good morning, uh, Dr. Gunning. Thank you very much for joining us for a conversation with the rabbi. How are you today? I'm good. Happy to be here. You know, I'm fascinated as someone who has left academia
0: myself many years ago that the things that brought us to our own expertise, to the subjects we research, the things we teach are often in ways that don't get talked about in academia, deeply personal. Tell us a little bit about your work and uh, what you do and what got you to that point, kind of how this all played out for you.
2: Well, I was a nerd uh, even as a little kid. So I I hand drew electoral college maps as a teenager to figure out what was the pivotal state in every... Ele- uh, every election in American history. So, as you can imagine, I was a lot of fun at parties. Uh, as I would tell you about, you know, the importance of Ohio in the 1884 election. <laughs> so, my my entryway into political science was really a deep interest in electoral politics. And so, this is this is really how I traveled down that route. I worked on a house campaign in my local area as a college graduate. I worked on a presidential campaign in 1992, and later I did an internship for a member of Congress, and then I worked for a member of Congress. And then lastly, I worked for the Embassy of Morocco in Washington, D.C. as their congressional liaison, which gave me uh, a Midwestern kid who didn't know uh, very much about Middle Eastern politics, a whole new look at uh, Arab-Israeli talks, uh, And this was during the 1990s. So you had, you know, the Clinton administration was trying to shepherd uh, some improvements in in some negotiations. And so- Oslo Accords and that whole- Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this was all, uh, I had some Washington experience before I went back to grad school to get a PhD and become the professor who who talks about things. So anyways, I I joke with my students that I actually did practice politics. So when I teach you, it's not just a case of those who can't do teach. Uh, I, I did- I did a little bit of that. But my own background is uh, I come from a family where uh, my mother's side is Mennonite. And so for viewers that might not know, Mennonite is a very small uh, Christian denomination, Protestant denomination in the United States. And it is kind of a sister, theologically, it's a sister to the Amish. So if you've heard of the Amish, uh, the Amish don't use modern conveniences like electricity and, and gas-powered engines and these kinds of things. I I distantly have Amish relatives on my mother's side. Uh, the Mennonites use modern equipment, but they have a, a heavy emphasis on piety and modesty so they don't wear bright colors. You don't buy a red car if you're Mennonite. Black and blue, you know, and dark colors are acceptable as modest colors, uh, my grandmother, who's still alive, uh, she's in her 90s, has never cut her hair. She doesn't wear jewelry. She's never worn makeup. Uh, and so these are this is the background on m- my mother's side. And, and they're pacifists, which makes them very different from most Americans and most Protestants and most Christians in the United States. Uh, my father's side is more of a traditional Protestant sort of Church of Christ background. Uh, and so in my own family, my parents had a born-again Christian experience when I was 10. And we attended an evangelical church growing up. And so that's that's my particular sort of connection to the topic of religion. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that uh, I grew up in a small town Midwestern area and virtually everyone I interacted with at least nominally claimed to be a Christian or had some connection to a Christian denomination, I remember... A neighbor lady once talking about another family, and she said, "Well, they're French Catholic, not German Catholic." And so those those were the kind of distinctions that uh, that I was aware of. And it wasn't until I went to college that I really met somebody who was of the Jewish faith, for example. And later, when I went to work for the embassy of Morocco, it was really the first time I had interacted on a daily basis with someone who was Muslim. And so these were tremendous eye opening experiences to me as I got into my my late teens and 20s, and I realized that the religious lens is a powerful lens that shapes and colors the perception of not just politics, but many other things in terms of culture. And so I started off as someone deeply interested in politics, but then to understand why people hold political views that they do, I realized that I was needing to understand the connection of religion and how that religion acts as a lens or a focal point for political beliefs. I want to hear a little bit more as we go along. I'm just going
0: to put a pin in this for us to come back to later, because I think the fact that you are speaking to us from Georgia and that Georgia has been in the news a lot recently, but really, if folks were paying attention They would have noticed that Atlanta became the center of culture and pretty much everything long before this election cycle. So there's a lot of really interesting local and state level dynamics that you as a professor at a university that has wide open doors to many different folks, you're going to be kind of in the thick of. And I don't think that most people far away from that understand the unique Mixture of things that are going down in your in your area. So I hope you'll you'll touch on that. But I know that Rabbi Bale is gonna have some some very interesting questions as well. I, I wanna have him kind of see where where this direction, where this conversation is going to go, because he and I have talked a lot about American politics, uh, about what's been happening lately, how some of it's good, how some of it's not good. Yeah. Rabbi Bale, this is your chance
1: to really engage with an expert here. What's on your mind? So I I love the interplay of topics that Matthew brings because it's politics and religion. It's like two topics that I love the most besides history. So it's like, it's amazing. Uh, So I get to speak to an expert. You know, I always say that America is the most religious country in the world among the democracies in the world. And this always uh, strikes people that I say these that are not expert in the field uh, as, oh, no, but that's not true. Look at all the X, Y, and Z that happens in America. And and then I go back and I say, no, but listen, look, America is the only country where, for example, that I know of among democracies where uh, the president swears on the Bible when he takes office or that you have to swear on a Bible um, when uh, you go to court, or that uh, you need to or on every dollar is written in God we trust. So it's not only that the assumption that God exists, but also we trust in God. it's a it's a it's it, it's a higher than just saying,' I believe God exists. I trust in God. Can you tell us more of this of this intertwine between religion and politics in America? Especially in a country that purposely says, "Oh no, there is a separation of church of church and state," it seems a contradiction. And how does that play, especially in the last election?
2: There are so many ways I could answer that question. So i will I will have to make it. I will have to make choices here. Uh, I would I would think of a couple of things. So. One, I want to just for a moment, uh, visit Mr. James Madison. So I talk about this when I teach my intro students and I say, uh, Thomas Jefferson is often credited with the, you know, concept of separation of church and state. But I said, honestly, it's James Madison who should receive a lot more of attention. And so James Madison was the, was the young man of the American Revolution. So he was in his twenties and he was a protege of James Madison. And as a Virginia legislator, he was personally a member of uh, the Anglican Church. So he was a church attender. But he was—he also believed that faith was, a, in in essence, a private thing and should not be a matter of state policy. And during the colonial era, the state of Virginia had an officially established church, his own church, the one he attended. And as a state legislator, he led the effort to have the state of Virginia stop sending money to his own church and so he didn't believe that the government should be favoring or advantaging any one particular faith or religious viewpoint uh, but later he will be the primary drafter of the first amendment and the first amendment has two sides when it comes to religion which is the individual has the freedom to practice their religion so in other words if if uh, if a student at a public school wants to have a prayer group during their lunchtime they can but the state cannot favor an advantage of religion. So a state-funded teacher, such as myself or anyone that works at a public school, cannot lead students in a prayer. So it's this strange two sides of a coin that we have in the United States. And I would say some of this goes back to these sort of enlightenment-influenced leaders like James Madison in particular. So we have this, this juxtaposition of affirming that religious faith is something that everybody can have and exercise but also trying to create a little bit of distance from uh, favoring one thing. And I think this goes back really far. So if we look at the American Revolution, we have people, mostly Protestants, who are coming. But even among Protestants, we have lots of different groups. So we have Lutherans and we have Congregationalists and Episcopalians and other places, you know, we're going to get what will become the Methodists and other types of groups. And so even though Early America was overwhelmingly Christian and overwhelmingly Protestant. There were still very different versions of the church. And so in many of these colonies, there was sort of a, a common understanding that most Americans shared a, a similar religious viewpoint, but they attended very different religious organizations. And so there was this distinction between sort of shared assumptions and not wanting the government to be invested in any in particular organization. And I, I just want to affirm that you are absolutely correct. So uh, when you made the statement that America is unusually religious, if you look at advanced industrial democracies and you look at survey questions such as, you know, do you believe that God exists? Uh, do you believe in uh, uh, the, that there's a heaven and hell and the Christian way of talking about it? Or do you believe that there is like a divine revelation? These kinds of questions. the Americans are off the charts compared to Western European countries or Australia and and Japan, and kind of the countries we would consider peer societies or peer countries that we compare ourselves to. And so from an anthropological, sociological point, point, we are the exception. We are the outlier to a general trend, which is that wealthy, advanced, industrialized democracies tend to be secular uh, and less of an adherence. To religious faith is a very common trend when we look across the world. It's kind of sister democracies.
1: So I, I don't want to take it to the historical side on how, why we are the way we are. But I would like to understand from you, what are the ramifications in today's politics? You know, we just went through a very, very difficult and contentious uh, election. Right. Um, Some even believe that the current president should not be the president and that and that uh, former President Trump is the legitimate president. That's how contentious, uh, you know, these elections were. And and where does religion play his, his, his role in these elections? There's really two important trends for us to understand how
2: religion is intersecting with American politics. Uh, One is the trend in religion, which is we are seeing a shift in the percentage of people who identify with no religion or non-religion when they're asked the question. So we're seeing an increase of the unaligned, religiously unaffiliated, people use different terms, but so we're seeing a decline in the percentage of people who identify historically, which is Christian, which was the largest religious belief uh, found in American population. And then that's overlaid with a with another trend which has to do with race and ethnicity in the United States which is that the United States is trending away from being majority white uh, which is how people would you know might commonly define themselves to becoming a a polyethnic majority non-white nation and you know the census bureau says we're on that trajectory and so these two things over, overlap and one of the powerful things uh, that we see there was a good article in The Atlantic a couple of years ago that said the decline of white Christian America. So we're seeing a decline in the percentage of Christian people and we're seeing a uh, decline in the percentage of people uh, who are uh, white. And white and Christian is very strongly correlated with support for Republicans. So if we look at the two parties in the United States, uh, we find that white Protestants in particular very strongly tend to favor the Republican Party, and white Protestants who are in the evangelical category are roughly about 80% Republican voting. So it's a very strong link between religion, ethnicity, and Republican identification. And if we go to the other party, the Democratic Party is kind of 50-50. So the Democratic Party, which win, tends to win most many non-white voters, is roughly about half non-white voters. And it's roughly about white voters who tend to be more liberal and who tend to be more of the unaffiliated, religiously unaffiliated. But if we look at the Latino and black voters, many of those are churchgoers. So the the Democratic Party is more of a hybrid mix of sort of more secular white voters who tend to be liberal and more religiously attuned black Protestants and uh, Latino who might be Catholic or Protestant, but are often churchgoers. And who often have, if we ask them, conservative positions, maybe on, say, abortion or same sex marriage or these kind of social issues. But for them, their ethnic identity trumps those specific issues. Right. So we've got two things going on. And one of the things that was very important in the Trump era or the Trump period is that in many ways he connected to a white uh identity that was overlaid with a white Protestant layer as well. So it's one of the reasons that, you know, we see this kind of polarization both by religion and by education and even by place. So increasingly we see the metropolitan areas, which tend to be a little bit more secular, tend to be more highly educated, are voting very differently from rural America. And in many parts of rural America, they're much more religiously active, much more religiously attending, and those areas became more republican and metropolitan areas became more democratic voting so we've got these these layers of connection we've got religion we've got race and ethnicity and then we've got geography sort of the metropolitan versus rural
1: yeah it's always very interesting for me uh, as an out, a little bit of an outsider because i am an immigrant and i became an american citizen just last December, so I, I was very fortunate to be able to vote at this time for the first time in the elections, and it's always very interesting for me. Uh, you know, I've been living in this country for you know um, almost 16 years. Um, every time that there are elections, the the you know the map, you know, so you have certain areas that are so cl- entire states that are so clearly leading one side. And then you have the major cities, the major metropolitan cities. Like, you know, I lived in Georgia and yeah, you know, uh, Atlanta is definitely not, uh, you know, Georgia. Atlanta is Atlanta. Uh, and then you have Georgia, <laughs> you know, and probably the same, is becoming now here in Arizona, that Phoenix is becoming Phoenix, and it's different than the rest of Arizona. Um, and this we see it all over. Like, you know, probably LA is different than many of the parts of California, etc. And these elections they culminated in also, unfortunately, with some violence. Um uh, where do you see that going do you do you think that are we unfortunately adding towards more of that or and that's a two part question can religious leaders because america is so religious because even the nun um are more religiously affiliated than in Europe, for example, okay? Can, where where is the place of religion and religious leaders in finding, again, a common denominator where we can disagree on who we're going to vote, but then we're going to unite the next day as Americans? It's a great question, right? And I wish I knew, I wish I had a, you
2: know, a telescope in the future and I could tell you exactly how things will play out. So uh, first, let's take the polarization side. So this is not the first time in American history that the country has been deeply polarized in a, with, with respect to geography. So if we go back, obviously, to the pre-Civil War, there was a very strong polarization between the free states and the slave states that ended in a very destructive civil war, which freed imprisoned black people, which was great. Uh, but it also destroyed lots of property, destroyed lots of lives, and it left the southern region of the United States, the poorest region for a hundred years. And so there was long-term consequences of uh, both for persons and for the nation for that tremendous destruction. And then for a hundred years after the American Civil War, if you if you just click on you know Wikipedia and you start clicking through presidential elections and you look at the county maps, You could draw a line between North and the South. So northern counties usually voted Republican, and southern counties usually voted Democratic. And so, if we look at the 1880s and 1890s, we had very strongly, a very strong geographical polarization in the 1880s and 1890s, which it was associated with industrialization and and, in that that shift from agriculture to industry. That did not lead to a civil war. So we had sort of progressive reforms. The political system found ways to sort of muddle through that tense time. And then when we got to the Great Depression, a lot of that polarization really receded. And for most of the 1900s or the 20th century, we had a very depolarized era. Uh, And so it's interesting to me as a political scientist and a political historian, I grew up in that era and I tended to assume that that was normal politics, but perhaps polarization is the normal and what I grew up was, in fact, the exception, a very depolarized period. So we have experience with polarization, some of it that leads to war and some of it that doesn't lead to war. So I'm not of the school of thought that polarization irrevocably leads us into violence. It can, but it doesn't have to.
0: You know, you raise a really interesting point. Uh, I read one of uh, Heather Cox Richardson's essays a few days ago uh, where she was talking about the fact that from roughly the 1930s to the late 80s, uh, there was something of what was called the liberal consensus in American government and that all the president's administrations from FDR through Jimmy Carter, uh, regardless of which party they were Uh, representing shared a common outlook on the role of government, what government should do and the kinds of programs and so on. Of course, there continued to be debates on some of the issues. It's Ronald Reagan's election and his first speech where he says, government's not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem that begins to create one of the fractures that we now see as a major fault line today. But your point that maybe the consensus is the aberration. I think that's that's really interesting. I hadn't thought that before. I sort of had in mind, we need to you know get back to a more congenial relationship between different affiliations in American politics, but
2: m- maybe that's a mistaken assumption. I'd like to come to the second part of Michael's question, which was what is the role for faith leaders, right? And this goes a little bit to your point, Adrian. So if we go back 100 years ago or 150 years ago Faith leaders were important, as were other leaders of institutions, right? So we have labor leaders and we had faith leaders and we had industrial leaders. And one of the, one of the dramatic impacts of the internet is the great leveling. So today, Donald Trump, well, up until recently, Donald Trump could tweet out to his followers and skip the news media and skip all these intervening institutions that used to sort of provide some structure or some uh, organization to American politics. And so today we have AOC or Marjorie Taylor Greene, both female members of the House who have very different policies, but they have large Twitter followings and they, they communicate directly to people and they don't really go through these intermi- intermediary institutional leaders. And religious leaders are probably some of the few institutional leaders that have trust from the people who attend their congregations. And their assemblies. And they are one of the few things that still maybe have the same sort of authority that we used to see institutional leaders have a hundred years ago. And so one of the things that we have learned from political psychology is that if you want to form a consensus, if you want to bridge a divide, what doesn't work is showing people the right set of facts, right? And so Uh, I would say liberals are probably more guilty of this than conservatives, but liberals will say, well, like, well, if I just show you the facts, you're going to see that my side's right. And, you know, you're going to have to agree with me that that usually doesn't persuade people. Right. So uh, the research on psychology, political psychology, says that the way to build a consensus or an agreement is to begin by having a conversation about values. What do you value? So let's say we have a conservative a uh, Christian who says they believe that you know God charged humans with managing the earth, and we have a, a liberal secular person that says you know the I don't want the the earth to be trashed and I want to preserve it. Well, if you begin from the if you, if you begin with a conversation about both of these groups care about the planet and care about uh, keeping the planet healthy and in a, a good place to live then it's a lot easier to, to start from a position of shared values to then specific policy proposals. Okay, well, if we both care about the earth, how would we know that this is bad for the earth? Or how what could we do affirmatively to change things? And so and in particular, because religious leaders frequently speak in the language of values, I think that they are in a very strong position to act as connecting points between divided and polarized America. Uh, so in particular, I, you know, your your interest of interfaith and crossfaith connections, you are familiar with how these conversations work and that there are shared values. You know, I mean, people who attend different religious faiths, they certainly don't agree on
1: many points, but there are things that they agree about. Absolutely. But I, I you know, you said the F word, facts. <laughs> It has become a very, very bad word (laughs) lately. What are facts today? You know, I, over the last number of years, it's no secret for those who know me that uh, my politics and my wife's politics differ on many issues, and on many issues, uh, we are the same. And uh, it's fascinating to me how her facts and my facts often are very different how can we resolve that, because in order to have a true conversation as you said about values, we need to agree to what are the playing fields and what these last elections with the internet and Twitter and all of those things, and whatever it's called fake news and everybody blames the other what is the solution? I mean, how can we um Get rid of all the fakeness and go back to okay sh- shared understanding of what some premises are. Or maybe, as you said, maybe this is the new this is the new reality, and we're gonna need to be each one of us much more involved in politics and much more involved and knowledgeable to be able to make the proper choice probably early in that conversation. So if you
2: began with a conversation about, look, we share values, we uh, we want to encourage, you know, parents to be able to raise their children. Okay, that's a shared value. How would we know if our laws and our uh, practices facilitate that? Well, we may have to have a conversation about how we're going to measure things, how we're going to assess the facts. One of the things that I do uh, every couple of semesters is I teach our statistics program for political scientists. And measurement is a thorny problem. Even for social scientists, we will fiercely disagree at times about what's the best way to measure segregation? What's the best way to measure uh, racial animosity, right? So political scientists will disagree with each other. But part of that is having a good faith conversation about we're we're all interested in measuring something, and we may have slightly different ideas about what's the best way to do it. But in part, by having that conversation and achieving some level of consensus or agreement, it then makes, it it, it leads to greater buy-in. So whatever we agree is our yardstick. If we both agree to that yardstick and then the yardstick shows us something, we're both more likely to say, okay, we need to tackle this problem. So this brings us to a really, really important
0: topic, which, and and I'm thrilled that as a trained political scientist, your mind automatically goes to measurement. And of course, for those of us in the human sciences, we're dealing with methodology and challenges to that and all the rest. But for everyday folks, this this maps onto something that I think is a real issue, which is what are the sources of information? Let's, and I think, unfortunately, there's interpretation, which, which for us comes as a secondary step in the process where gathering the information, collecting data comes before the analysis of it. So that's a little complex. It doesn't map on exactly because for many folks today, the sources of information is already an interpretation. I, I think now that sounds very theoretical and abstract. I have a bad habit on this show of asking impossible questions that try to tie 16 different domains together. And I'm about to do that. We need to talk about the media. And I use that term carefully uh, because it means so many different things to so many different people. But for most folks, whatever we mean when we say the media has typically been where they get information. And I think back to a few uh, decades ago when there was a lot fewer media outlets and uh, many of those held themselves to a standard of objectivity which ought to be problematized and understood because was not, in fact, objective, etc. But there came to be a, a set of sources of information with particular ties to the Christian right, it must be said, that began to shape the way people think about the events of the day. You grew up originally in a Mennonite context. I grew up in a radio station, a Christian radio station. And we used to run James Dobson's Focus on the Family on our station in the 70s and 80s. And that morphed into, you know, uh, Ralph Reed and his Christian coalition and so on. Then with a more secular twist, we have in the same general market, because I grew up in Southern California, Rush Limbaugh emerges without an explicitly Christian narrative, but a very, very kind of heavy handed shaping the conversation point of thing. Fast forward to today where the sources of information have multiplied and whether it's YouTube or TikTok or wherever folks are getting their inputs, do we even have a hope of restoring some kind of agreement about where we're getting information about what's happening and then what we're going to do about it? I mean, I, I think what you said was admirable, and yet I'm left wondering, how do we solve this broader question about where people get the raw
2: material for thought? This is a hard question. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. And uh, again, I'm going to step back for a moment and take a broader historical perspective. So if we think of new technologies, new information technologies are historically very disruptive. When the printing press came out, Clay Shirky's written this great essay, I don't know, like 10 years ago, about the printing press. The printing press comes out and this is in Western Europe, which at that time is, you know, dominated by the Catholic church belief. And these Protestants start, you know, translating the Bible into local... Uh, length tongues and people can read the Bible in English and in German and, you know, Italian and these other languages. And then some of these people, yeah, then these people start to say, well, that's not what the church taught us, you know, and then it leads to the Protestant or contributes to the Protestant Reformation, which then leads to wars across Europe and people being tortured and executed for what they believe in. Uh, It's very disruptive. So when the Internet came along in my lifetime, there had been these things called newspapers that you could buy everywhere for, you know, 50 cents and it was paid for by print ads And they're almost all dead in the sense that people don't really read the newspaper in print hardly anymore. They read it online. There's still a thing called the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but it's like 50% smaller in terms of content. And they have, you know, they laid off half of their reporters. Again, it's very disruptive. So today we have blogs and we have, you know, other free media platforms that people like free news. So they go to free news. And I would say we're still in the middle of that transformation and it's disruptive and it's messy and it's, it's not clear what's on the other side of this voyage. Um, if we look at new technologies, there often is a period of chaos and then there are new social norms that manifest. And again, you're the anthropologist, so I'm probably being overly glib as a political scientist. But when, you know, Bluetooth first came out, people would walk around in restaurants having conversations with somebody and then other people would give them dirty looks. And eventually, there became norms about well, if you're going to carry on that conversation, maybe you need to step outside the restaurant or something like that, right? Or, or even when like uh, telephones first came, people would jump up and answer it, and then they got answering machines. And there's, you know, you don't call at certain hours of the night, don't call, don't call after ten. Your friends are not likely to be happy about that. So I would, I would say, for one thing, we're in the middle of a very disruptive transformation, and there's some, been some great. Uh, I've heard some great stuff about people who are trying to deal with uh, disinformation on these platforms. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not an easy problem to solve. And in many ways, we need new norms about what is trustworthy.
1: You know, it's, if I'm going to step back for a moment, uh, what we are highlighting is the problem of the source of authority or the source of truth, which goes back to the initial uh, connection that uh, Matthew passion and, and work and expertise is, is religion and politics. You know, what is the source of truth? You know, um, how at what point your students are going to say, uh, Dr. Gunning, no, you're wrong. But you're going to say, but I have 30 years experience and what I have studied, no, 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 that's your opinion. I have my opinion and I'm going to blog it and I'm going to have five million people agree with me. It doesn't matter that you are an expert or I love it when people come to me and they want to tell me what Judaism is or interpretations of certain verses from a Jewish perspective. And I'm like, I remember this girl many years ago. She told me I know everything about Judaism. I took a seminar in college (laughs) and I'm like, okay, yes, you do know everything. Um, and so, so the source of truth and the source of it, it all becomes opinion. So you have your opinion, and I have my opinion. But that's not the way it should work. There should be some truths. There should be some accepted truths in religion in science, in uh, politics even, in history. History is about historical facts, not about my opinion. Yeah, We can have interpretations about certain historical facts. So what are you going to do when your student tells you, um, that's your opinion, doctor. Um, I got my own opinion and I'm going to blog about it. When I teach uh,
2: methods for political scientists, I say up front that for the most part, political science is an empirical field of study. And we believe that there are things that are measurable. If you believe that a certain phenomenon is happening, then you should be able to show that with some kind of measurement. And uh, we're not, for the most part, dominated by postmodernists. There are some postmodernist political scientists, and that tends to be more the humanities types of fields. And so As a group of political scientists, we tend to begin from the point of view that there is, if there's trends out there, they're measurable. And that's our shared rubric, our shared yardstick for how we engage with each other as researchers. And so if a student comes to me and they say, you're wrong, and I would say, well, okay, bring me your bring me your data. Bring me your data. So if you think X is happening, show me that X is happening. And so that tends to be how I handle those kinds of things in, in political science.
1: But then how do we show to all those millions of people that still today believe that the elections were stolen? It's like, you know, how do we take it from outside the classroom to this town square And say, yeah, I'm very sorry. You wanted Trump to win. Maybe I did too. Maybe everybody else wanted, but he lost. Move on. I would say two things. One, uh,
2: I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing a bit of a realignment among white voters with a college education. So I think that there is still a lot of reliance upon a shared yardstick on the left side of the spectrum. And I personally know people who've usually voted Republican in the last couple of cycles. They said, look, I, I just, this is crazy. I can't vote for this. And these are not liberal people, but they're like, you know, these people are using a crazy yardstick and I'm, I'm, I'm not using the crazy, crazy yardstick. So we, one of the big trends is we're seeing this divide between people with a college degree and those without, and you can interpret that as a class divide which certainly there's that's there's an aspect. But there also is, I think, something important that happens to many people when they go to college, which is they kind of buy into maybe a certain kind of yardstick
1: or certain way of assessing things. So, you know, that's... But what do you say to those from the other side that say, oh, no, colleges are just a full of liberal professors, and that's why those that have a degree vote the way they vote because they've been brainwashed by those liberal professors. And so you enter into this, kind. to me, I hate to those kinds of conversations because it's like talking, uh, you know, what's the sex of angels? That's a good question. <laughs> that, that We should have that as a topic for an episode, yes, by the
0: way. Yes, we should. You that know? <laughs> was not
2: on my radar, but
0: I will now not sleep <laughs> until I
2: know the answer to this question. I think that's how Constantinople fell, right? Weren't they debating the sex of angels? Oh no, that was the number of
1: angels that could be on the head of a pin or something. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but exactly the same same type of questions. What advice can you give to your students and to our listeners to say, let's use a yardstick that makes sense so that we can recognize crazy and then we can debate, you know, among us of what is we can debate on politics. We can agree on values. We can even disagree on values, but let's do it within a framework that, that is normal. That is makes sense. I don't have an easy answer to this
2: question. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that, um, you know, on, on the left side of the spectrum, there tends to be a shared framework, but on the left, you still have people who sort of have, you know, what you might call anti-science, like say anti-vax people, for example. Uh, I think there's more of this, especially with disputing the election results. Clearly, that was more on the right side of the spectrum. And in some ways, only people on the right side of the spectrum can reshape this. Uh, People on the left aren't going to be able to reshape that because of political psychology. People trust people on their own team. So there's nothing that Joe Biden can say that is going to bring right-of-center people back to a shared yardstick. That can only happen if people on the right side of the spectrum, the conservative side, they're the ones that assert, look, there is an empirical reality. COVID is real. You should wear a mask. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is that you see differences. So in particular, if you look at LDS or, you know, as are popularly, popularly known Mormon people, they tend to be pretty science-based. And And if you look at Republican politicians in Utah, which are, you know, overwhelmingly uh, LDS in that state they have uh, pretty, you know, empirical based policies and they're more conservative. Uh, people on the left might not like all their policies, but they tend to be rooted in data and science and these kinds of things. And so it's not as though you can't have that on the right side of the spectrum, but it really is going to take some uh, some assertion from leaders on that side to to restore some kind of shared yardstick. And so you see people like Mitt Romney, who's pretty sciency, if I can, a non-technical term. I think Mitt Romney still operates, you know, he's a numbers guy, came out of Bain Capital and, you know, it's dollars and cents and analytics. So uh, he's used to these kinds of things. But, and this is one of the big splits you even see in religion between, say, LDS people who are very conservative uh, and white evangelicals who are very conservative, but much more likely to fall into sort of prosperity gospel and get-rich-quick schemes and sort of, uh multi-level marketing types of things and it it is an issue. So I come out of that evangelical Christian milieu. And there's just a lot of people who attend church who sort of fall for gimmicks and and things that are not out there. And it it would takes leadership within those communities, right? So the Mormon leaders are are more willing to stand up and say this is this is not right or this is what we stand for. But For it to happen in in white
1: evangelicals, it's going to take leaders on that side to put that into place. Which now this explains maybe why the overwhelming majority of Orthodox Jews uh, also voted uh, for Trump or vote for uh, Republicans uh, Republicans because on the issue of science or non-science, I think that they're very close cousin first cousins with the evangelical white Evangelican. meaning i think that maybe the issue orthodox jews voted for trump not only because of politics of israel but maybe also in, in what you mentioned is the, what is your approach to science you know uh, my kids went to i went to a school like that and my kids also where um they taught us that you know dinosaurs never existed and god uh created the bones of the dinosaurs to test our faith you know uh you know um uh, gravity doesn't exist it's just the will of god that um the leaf falls in a certain way it's not because of the law of gravity. So that's interesting because I've always thought, and most people, I think, think that uh, the majority of Orthodox Jews voted for Trump because of policies vis-a-vis Israel. But you, you did not say directly, but what you were suggesting is that, and what I'm suggesting maybe is is their view vis-a-vis religion and science that, has led them maybe also to vote in the way that they voted? If you interview
2: an evangelical Christian, they believe in divine revelation. They believe that God speaks to people, which uh, probably Orthodox Jews believe that as well. Again, I know precious little about Orthodoxy, so I'm very cautious about what I'm saying here uh, as a point of comparison. But Uh, So if you believe that there is a God and and God intervenes, so they believe literally New Testament miracles uh, where Jesus like multiplies the fishes or. That did not happen? Well, not everyone agrees that that like secular people would be very skeptical of that. Right. Oh, you know, Daniel in the lion's den where God protects, you know. You mean the fleece wasn't wet, but the ground was dry. (laughs) Trying to understand (laughs) this
0: metaphysics here.
2: If your faith. Uh, leaves open the possibility that there are these things that don't fit into the scientific worldview. Right. It, I think it can lead people more vulnerable to other alternative viewpoints of yeah, very interesting medicine of health and of politics. Like, well, maybe that didn't really happen. Yeah. Maybe science is wrong. I already believe science is wrong over here, right? Well, maybe science is wrong over there yeah. as well. And science gets stuff wrong. I don't want to make it sound like science is omnipotent. No, science gets stuff wrong all the time, you know. But it's open to revision and and and, and new data. So
0: sure, yeah, science is premised on the idea that falsifying your hypothesis is a valid outcome from the process. And so actually seeking quote unquote, the truth, whatever that means, by seeking to disprove yourself as a way of validating it is an interesting, it's an interesting framework that's not widely shared. You know, I want to wrap up our conversation here. Dr. Gunning, you teach in a four-year university. It's relatively new And uh, you've got 15,000 students, uh, which must represent a very interesting set of views and outlooks and so on. You teach small classes in a relatively specific field. And at the same time, this gives you a perspective on the future. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And what is this making you think about with regard to the future?
2: So that's correct. Uh, my school's uh, twelve years old, and we are in Gwinnett County, which used to be overwhelmingly white, but in twenty ten became majority non white. So it's a very diverse county. My particular state house district is about one quarter black, one quarter white, one quarter Latino, and one quarter Asian. So it's extremely diverse. Uh, my you know my particular street is uh, very diverse, and my house is the gay house on the street. So you know we fit in with that. So. Um, my students are very diverse. A lot of first or second generation immigrant families, a lot of first generation to go to college. And I would say honestly that um, there have been times where I have despaired about politics in the last half decade, but my students give me hope. They're excited to be Americans, my immigrant families. They're very hardworking. They work 20 to 40 hours a week and they go to college. You know, they're hungry to learn things and they want to make this place a better place. And so, it's a continual source of encouragement for me as now that I'm getting, you know, into middle age and, and I see that some of the problems that I was optimistic might be solved in my 20s and those problems are not being solved or maybe they've gotten worse. Uh, sometimes it makes me discouraged, but, you know, I see these new new generation rising and I have hope and it encourages me to see them build the next uh, the next America that will come after I'm gone, right? So, you know, I'm I'm now I'm about the age of their parents or even slightly older. And so their generation will create a new society and it'll be different from the one that you and I live in. And and I do have some hope. Uh, So I guess that would that would be the positive note we could end on. (laughs) Dr.
0: Matthew Gunning is an assistant professor of political science at Georgia Gwinnett College. He's a specialist in American politics, and he's out there teaching future generations of American voters. Thanks very much for joining us for this conversation.
1: Thank you very much, Adokan Hopefully you will join us again for a next a second part of this conversation. Thank you once again and have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to Conversation with the Rabbi on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the latest episodes online at conversationwiththerabbi.com. For all of us here at PHX.FM, I'm Adrian McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and please join us for the next
2: conversation with the rabbi.